seriously popular. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Natasha Livingston, Royal Correspondent for The Mail on Sunday. Welcome to The Crown, Fact or Fiction. This is the second of our special podcasts where we tell you about the events that would be essential to include in a future series of The Crown, and we take a guess at how they'd be represented. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Royal Biographer and Columnist Robert Hardman. Hello, Natasha. Yes, this is uh, how we think Series 7 of The Crown, should they ever make one, would pan out. As you know, the Crown Series 6 ended with Charles and Camilla's wedding in 2005. Our new series uh, began last week, uh, culminating in the wedding of William and Catherine at Westminster Abbey in 2011. Now we move on to 2012, a pivotal royal year. The International Olympic Committee has the honour of announcing that the Games of the 30th Olympiad in 2012 are awarded to the city of London. The stage is set for a busy summer in London. Many believe the Diamond Jubilee celebrations may even eclipse those of the Olympics. This is the culmination of the Queen's reign, and we're beginning to see what a pivotal and seminal figure she has been in a way that we could just glimpse at the Golden. So yes, it's 2012, a year that has two big summer events in June, July and on into August. The eyes of the world really are on London, actually, starting with the Queen's Diamond Jubilee in early June and then, of course, the 2012 Olympic Games, which open at the end of July. Both 
enormous events, not just for Britain, not just for the Commonwealth, but I mean, genuinely global events. The Jubilee, which kicks off first, I mean, it's only the second Diamond Jubilee celebrating 60 years, that is, only the second one in history. The first was Queen Victoria way back in 1897. She was very frail at the time. She couldn't even get out of her carriage for some of the events. Elizabeth II, much more agile this time around. It's going to be a huge year for her. Yes, and in the sixth series of The Crown, we saw the Queen's Golden Jubilee, which celebrated 50 years on the throne. And in that series, we saw the Queen racked with uncertainty about how the public felt about her and the monarchy. So thinking about how The Crown would depict these moments, we've got to think, would the TV version of the Queen be more assured? Or would the Crown introduce some tension by depicting her as worried that maybe this one wouldn't go very well or that it would be playing second fiddle to the Olympics? What do you think, Robert? Well, we know the Crown loves a bit of tension. Of course it does. It's drama. So I'm sure they would work in an element of doubt on the part of the Queen and the Palace because these events really were rubbing up against each other. They weren't rivals, but I mean, you could definitely imagine the Palace being a bit worried worried that, well, this is a huge year for the monarchy, 60 years of Jubilee, but actually, are we going to be eclipsed? And I do remember at the time, it wasn't so much a worry, but there was a conscious effort to put some clear space between the two events, some breathing space so that they didn't clash. I mean, if nothing else, there's only so much public money that's available. So that must have been a concern. Yeah, I mean, the, the dear old Jubilee, honestly, that had a budget of, I think, in terms of public expenses, sort of next to nothing. Whereas the Olympics, the bill just kept going on and on. The initial bill for the Olympics was, the budget was about two and a half billion pounds. By the end, it was over nine billion pounds. They were building new stadia, they were building roads and Olympic villages. I mean, it was an enormous bit of regeneration of the East End, whereas the Jubilee was all about keeping the costs right down to the point that pretty much everything had to be sponsored. And the Queen herself was very keen that there should be no extra public money. It didn't stop people complaining, of course, about the cost. But I mean, you know, you look at the two budgets, I mean, you could have done the Jubilee cost probably, I would say, a sort of a tenth of the netball catering budget from the Olympics. And how did they want to make it different from the Golden Jubilee? Because, you know, it's a different period in her life. It's a different celebration. There was definitely an awareness that the Queen was now of advanced years. She was coming up to her 90th birthday. You couldn't expect the same of her. So, for example, she was doing much less long distance travelling, but she still made sure that she went right around the country, visited all the different parts. In fact, the whole Jubilee kicked off. I remember I was there. It was in Leicester. It was quite a chilly day. And what they would do is they'd go to a particular part of the country and take in, you know, a few cities, a few counties in one day. And it was Leicester was chosen for day one. The Queen and the Duke took along the then Duchess of Cambridge, who until a year before had been Kate Middleton. Prince William was away. I remember he was on helicopter pilot duty in the Falkland Islands. So they said to their granddaughter-in-law, look, come along. You can see how it works. So here you had this extraordinary titanic figure, only the second Diamond Jubilee Queen ever, and Prince Philip, and the new girl, Kate, in the car, and off they went to Leicester, and it all kicked off with a fashion show, I remember, at a university, and it culminated in a huge walkabout. Great success. That set the tone, but then it all leads up to this big, 
weekend, this big four-day weekend where we're going to have huge, huge events one after the other. I wonder how Catherine felt at that fashion show, knowing that another fashion show maybe changed her life. Who knows? <laughs> Real full circle moment for her. <laughs> yeah, royal historians will, will definitely have a place for fashion shows in years to come. As the Thames reaches high tide, a thousand strong flotilla of vessels from across the world will pass under Tower Bridge, a river pageant the likes of which hasn't been seen for centuries. At the flotilla's core, the Queen's Barge. Welcome aboard the Spirit of Chartwell. The boat's now going for a refit in a secret location. The new design will echo the richly decorated royal barges of the 17th and 18th centuries. And so the Jubilee arrives and much has been made of the Thames flotilla. It's estimated a million people lined the banks of the Thames to see the parade and the event set a Guinness World Record for the largest parade of boats. Robert, you were there. What was it like? Oh, it was fabulous. I mean, it was so British. It's flaming June, uh, so we are led to believe. And the day didn't start too badly, but the weather forecast wasn't great. And as the day went on, it darkened and then the rain started. And then there was this terrible wind coming coming in from the east, straight in from Siberia. It was perishing cold. And all these people had gone to so much trouble. And you had boats of every sort. You had tiny, weeny little rowing boats, little sailing boats. There was an enormous barge carrying a bell, an entire sort of belfry, really, that was designed for a church had been put on a Thames barge. You had a replica of an Elizabethan rowing barge full of Olympic oarsmen pulling it. I mean, you had all this going on. And then the Queen arrived, got in the original launch from the Royal Yacht Britannia, which had been removed from a museum in Scotland, put back in the river with the original crew. She absolutely loved it. Went down the river for about a mile and then climbed aboard this specially designed boat called the Spirit of Chartwell, which is Chartwell being Churchill's home. And this had been designed with this big flat open deck so that everybody could see her. But obviously it meant she was exposed to this terrible weather. And right at the front of it, they designed these two almost theatrical red thrones for her and Prince Philip to sit on. There's no way she's going to sit on a fake mock-up throne at the best of times. Damp with it, rain. Well, damp with rain. But actually provided a rather useful windbreak. So the two of them stood behind this thing and just went down the river. So what boat were you on? What was the lineup, as it were? <laughs> Everyone was desperate to be on a sort of boat near the front. Everyone wanted to be on the Queen's boat, of course, and, and that wasn't going to happen if you weren't royal. The next boat behind, I think, had other members of the royal family. Then there was a boat with sort of world leaders, and I was on the one after that with a documentary crew. I knew it was a pretty good boat to be on because as I looked around, I saw that the entire Middleton family were on my boat, as was Lord Coe, Sebastian Coe, the Olympic chair. So, you know, clearly we were in a good slot. And, and the weather just got worse and worse, but it just didn't dampen spirits. The Daily Mail article at the time said it was a quintessentially British occasion with the weather to match, but the cold, the wind and the rain proved no match for the determination of millions across Britain who enjoyed their street parties. Well, that's absolutely nailed it. And on it went down to Tower Bridge. Tower Bridge opened with great ceremony as the Queen came underneath and the sort of flotilla came through. And then once it had got through Tower Bridge, the idea was it was then going to stop and all the other boats were going to 
to come sailing past the Queen. But by then, the weather was so bad, they had to rearrange the plans. There was meant to be a helicopter fly past. That had to be cancelled. There were meant to be daytime fireworks. They had to be cancelled. And as we discovered later, at least 20 people by this point had actually been admitted to hospital with hypothermia. And yet there was this incredible choir that had been standing there all afternoon. There's a famous picture of them. They look absolutely drenched and frozen, but they still stood there, waited for the Queen, sang the national anthem. Only in Britain would we regard that as a success. I think most other countries would have called it off halfway through. Yeah, I mean, watching the videos from the cosy warmth of the office, it did look comically miserable with everyone sort of shivering in the rain. But, you know, obviously a lot of people just kind of stood through it with that, you know, British attitude and just got on with it. But unfortunately, Prince Philip, who obviously at this point was quite elderly, fell ill and he had to take an absence from the rest of the celebrations and go to hospital. Yeah, how do you think the Crown would have handled this bit, Natasha? Well... As you say, they love anything dramatic. So I think it's quite likely that they would make a big deal of this. Maybe they would film him collapsing kind of on the flotilla. You know, you can imagine that they would really hem that up. Mm. Prince Philip was clearly loving it. He was in his admiral's uniform and even to the end, I remember the band were playing sort of sea shanties and you could see him sort of tapping his foot and sort of, you know, nodding along. He was having a high old time, but right at the end, we didn't see this. I mean, it was after the Queen and the Duke got off the boat. It was later announced that he'd actually been rushed off to hospital with an infection. So you'd gone from... All the expectation for this jubilee, then to the spectacular but rather dramatic event that ends up absolutely being frantically ruined by the weather, to the sad news. I mean, the Crown, I think, would have had a field day. I mean, lots of blue flashing lights and, uh, you know, cellos playing and a bit of drama. So here we are on, on day one of a long weekend, and already Prince Philip's been rushed off to hospital. You can imagine how the Crown would have played up the tension with all that. And there are still all these other events still to go, uh, not least um, a, a huge concert outside Buckingham Palace. Do you remember watching that, Natasha? We actually checked my family's version of the court circular, which is my grandma's diary, to find out what we were all doing at this time. Apparently, we were all very busy in the village. Uh, with There were some celebrations and a hog roast. But oh. yes, there, there was a concert, much more important than Prince Charles, um, gave a speech at the time alongside pop royalty, very much 2012 pop royalty. It was Paul McCartney, Elton John, Stevie Wonder, Kylie Minogue, Jesse J, Gary Barlow. I mean, the list just goes on and mm. on. It was really quite fabulous, wasn't it? It was a great evening. I mean, it had had lots of great names. I remember Grace Jones doing a kind of slightly mad hula hooping act. And yes, it ended with lots of pyrotechnics and the now traditional end of event royal appearance on the stage. The only sad thing about this evening is that my father couldn't be here with us because unfortunately he is uh, taken on well. But ladies and gentlemen, if we shout loud enough, he might just hear us in hospital and get By now, the mall had sort of filled up with people, as far as the eye could see, and you just heard this chant starting, and it was Philip, Philip, Philip. And they were all chanting for the Duke, and I think Queen was incredibly touched by that. Yeah, I think watching the video, I thought we also saw a real kind of vision of Charles as the entertainer. He's really kind of weeping with the crowd. The crowd go wild and it's it's a really nice moment to watch. It is. And, and of course, there's the other great remark. What's his other great remark? He says, Your Majesty, Mummy, 
one thing I found just quite amusing as well was in the video, the Queen is uh, standing next to or at least slightly in front of Cheryl Cole, which not to say that Cheryl Cole still isn't very famous, but that shows 2012, like Cheryl Cole really was the pinnacle of celebrity <laughs> right next to the Queen. A snapshot in time. Absolutely. The final appearance of four days in which the monarchy can rarely have been cemented more strongly in the affections of the British people. No matter that the rain was threatening to make one last unwelcome appearance, the crowds more than a million strong were going to shout their support. Their monarch was going to express her thanks to a very grateful nation. And for this diamond weekend, she was wearing her grandmother's spectacular diamond brooch, two stones cut from the Cullinan diamond. And then, of course, the Jubilee comes to a close, as ever, with, where else, an appearance on the palace balcony. But it's quite a different one, isn't it, Natasha? Yeah, it's very much, it's this first time we really saw the slimmed down monarchy. It was the Queen, Charles, Camilla, William and Catherine. And Prince Harry was there as well. But, you know, compared to what we'd seen at the Golden Jubilee of the extended royal family kind of crammed onto the balcony, it was really very different, wasn't it? Well, it was. And I can see the crown. Were we talking about fictional Series 7, Episode 2? I can see there being a major subplot as to the discussion around who goes out on the balcony. Because, as you say, traditionally... Traditionally, at big royal events, you get all the royal family. And a very clear decision had been taken from on high that for this one, we were going to see the future, if you like, the much-discussed, slimmed-down royal family, although it wasn't a phrase at the time. Uh, and there was this conscious decision not to fill the balcony with lots of cousins and just have the sort of central unit. And I think what was so significant then is, yes, of course, it had the Prince of Wales, Duchess of Cornwall, the new Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, William and Kate, and Harry. There was Prince Harry, very much seen as part of the future of this institution. And how do you think the Crown would play with this? Would they kind of make it seem like this was a kind gesture from the Queen to include Prince Harry, even though he's, quote unquote, the spare? Uh, or would this be a kind of very dramatic thing with big arguments going on behind the scenes? What they would have probably focused on was there was a big argument behind the scene involving Prince Andrew, who was very unhappy to be excluded from this and was sort of charging around the house saying, I, I absolutely ought to be there. And was told, well, sorry, but you know, you're not really part of the future of this institution. But there's nothing token about Harry's appearance on the balcony. He's very much seen as a central part of the team. And 2012 is actually going to turn out to be a very big and very memorable year for him. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. 
so we have jumped to the following month and we are now watching what really is one of the great royal cameo roles of all time. We're seeing a taxi arriving at Buckingham Palace. It's Daniel Craig and he's jogging up the stairs and he is walking very purposefully through the palace on his way to meet his boss. Out comes the Queen's real page. Evening, sir. Evening. Paul Wybrew knocks on the door, opens the door. Bond, dressed for dinner, dinner jacket and black tie, comes in. Mr Bond, Your Majesty. He's introduced. Bond steps forward, but the Queen is still busy at her desk. And at this point, the whole world is thinking, is that a body double? Is that the real Queen? Good evening, Mr Bond. Oh my God, goes the entire planet. It's the real Queen. It's the real James Bond. We're at Buckingham Palace. I mean, what the hell is going on here? The Queen leads Bond and her page and the Corgis. Uh, they're coming out. They're coming out onto the terrace uh, at the back of Buckingham Palace. And there is a helicopter. The Queen is getting into the helicopter. And so is James Bond. So this Royal Helicopter's whizzing across the London skyline. We're sitting in the stadium watching all this on a big screen, thinking, what an amazing video. And then suddenly overhead comes a real helicopter. I mean, oh my goodness, that helicopter that's in the, on the screen, now it's here. Cut to the screen. Uh, it shows Bond opening the door of the helicopter, at which point the Queen jumps out. Bond follows. We see two parachutes coming down at which point into the stadium appears the queen and of course the queen is wearing exactly the same outfit it's all been beautifully planned by her dresser angela kelly who for the first time ever produced two identical outfits one for the queen to wear and one for the stunt double to wear ladies and gentlemen please stand for her majesty the queen and his royal highness the duke of edinburgh and there really is a sense of disbelief that we've just seen the Queen in this extraordinary cameo role. It's unlike anything we've really seen her do before. And it just takes the world totally by surprise and everybody loves it. And I remember a few weeks later, I was interviewing the Queen of Denmark, who was in the stadium that night. And she said to me, she said, I just love that video. You know, we're all sitting there. We're wondering, this can't be, this really can't be Elizabeth II. And then when she turns around to look at James Bond at her desk and everyone goes, oh my goodness, it's for real. So this is a very memorable, very dramatic moment. I mean, I remember I was 14 years old at the time. My brother was 12. We just thought this was hysterical. It was just incredible to so watch. It's, it's, yeah, still brings a smile to my face. Um, but you imagine that going back to the crown, they would have had a lot of fun here trying to imagine how on earth this would have come about and how the Queen would have been persuaded to to have got involved. And we know Danny Boyle was the producer and he'd made the Academy Award winning film Slumdog Millionaire. How do you think the crown would have portrayed these negotiations? I think they'd have had, as you say, great fun with all the people, sort of all the officials at the palace tiptoeing around and Danny Boyle or somebody like Danny Boyle, one of the producers saying, hey, I've had this great idea. Let's get the Queen and James Bond jumping out of a helicopter. At which point, you know, half of the royal entourage would have said, are you off your rocker? How <laughs> on earth is that going to happen? But gradually you could see the idea sort of permeating through. And this is what happened. I mean, Danny Boyle came up with this idea. He put it to Seb Coe. And I know this because I interviewed Seb Coe and the various people involved. Seb Coe talked to the 
Queen's private secretary, Edward Young, or deputy private secretary, who was in charge of this event and said, well, what do you think? And Edward Young said, well, it's sort of binary decision. It's a kind of yes or no. They asked the Princess Royal. Princess Royal, of course, was a key player in bringing the Olympics to London. She's a member of the International Olympic Committee. She's been involved at every stage of the London Olympics. So uh, Sebco, the private secretary, go to the Princess Royal and said, well, what do you think? Do you think the Queen might do this? And the Princess Royal says, well, you better ask her. So it's put to the Queen and her reply is very simple. She goes, Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Everyone's sort of amazed. Oh, my God, she'll do it. And she makes one change. Danny Boyle has submitted a script. It's a very simple script. She actually only has one line. The original line was she would turn around at her desk and see James Bond and go, good evening, James. And the Queen's one change to the script was she felt it was more appropriate if she turned around and said, good evening, Mr. Bond. Absolutely. So she, it was one change, I think a very judicious change. Yeah. And what I think was so wonderful was that this was all kept secret right up until the night. And it came as much of a surprise to me as anybody else, as indeed to members of the royal family. I mean, Seb Coe was very funny about it. He's in the royal box. And he said that even William and Harry, who were sitting alongside him, they had no idea this was coming. He said he heard both William and Harry shouting, Go, Granny, go! (laughs) I just love that. She's kind of starfished in the sky coming down. I mean, I think the reason why this is so loved and was so popular at the time is that it is completely against that idea that the palace and therefore the queen are very stuffy and uptight. And that's obviously the image that the crown has very much portrayed in the previous series. So do you think that they would kind of I guess, mess with what really happened and make the Queen more kind of opposed to it. That's a very good point. I mean, you cannot possibly imagine the Imelda Staunton Queen that we've seen up until Series 6 of The Crown being this kind of playful, slightly cheeky monarch, quite happy to be part of a joke at her own expense. I mean, there aren't many, frankly, heads of state around the world who would have taken part in a scene like that. And yet you 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 have to have enormous confidence. I think what this whole exercise with Bond and indeed with the Jubilee shows is actually that inner self-confidence of the Queen, that that ability to know that, okay, this is going to work, because it was a calculated risk, but it, it just captured the world's imagination. I mean, I do remember looking at the headlines the next day and all the papers around the world, and normally the headlines would be fireworks, Olympic rings, and the headline, Olympic Games open in London. A lot of newspapers around the world, <laughs> the headline was, Queen jumps out of helicopter with James Bond. <laughs> Certainly not one anyone would have predicted. Aside from this incredible moment when you'd kind of recovered from the shock of it all, what else do you remember of the Olympics and being in London at this time? What I do remember is that the principal underlying tension on the British side was we needed to win some medals. It took about a week before we did. And I remember it was at the Rowing Lake where Catherine Granger and Anna Watkins in the double skulls to win the first golds for Britain. And then we never really looked back, did we? Yeah, my main memory of this is what was soon dubbed Super Saturday, when Jessica Ennis-Hill, Greg Rutherford and Mo Farah all won gold in 44 minutes inside the Olympic Stadium. And I was watching this with my family at home and we were just so excited. I mean, we were skipping round the footstool <laughs> in the front lounge. It was just one of those incredible moments where it just all seemed really too good to be true. It was just this magical fortnight, followed, of course, by the Paralympics, which were themselves a great triumph. But the two weeks of the Olympics always end with a very dramatic closing ceremony. We had Bond and the Queen at the opening ceremony. 
Natasha, what happened at the closing ceremony? Well, I mean, the Spice Girls were there. That was very exciting. I remember them on their individual cars. It was a very big moment. Um, But it was also a very big day for Prince Harry because he'd been given the privilege, really, of closing it on behalf of the Queen. It was a really significant moment. Olympic Games are always opened by the head of state. They're normally closed by the head of state. By now, the Queen's gone to Balmoral. She has decided, I'm going to get a member of the family to represent me at the closing ceremony. And she doesn't choose the Prince of Wales. She doesn't choose Prince William. She chooses Prince Harry. And this is a really, really big moment for him. And what the public didn't know at the time, but I'm sure this is something that the Crown would make a big thing of, was that Harry was about to embark on his second tour of duty in Afghanistan, wasn't he? Only the royal family and a handful of military officials knew that Harry was going off to war. But it was underlying, as we later discovered, when we knew what the real story was. I think it was a very poignant decision by the Queen. And you can imagine the Crown having a great deal of fun as all the other members of the family wonder who's going to be called upon to represent the Queen since she's going to be off at Balmoral. Who will be there to, if you like, turn out the lights on London 2012? Will it be Charles? Will it be William? Will it be Anne? No, the Queen has given this honour to Harry and it's only later that we work out why it's because Harry is off to war. And so after two very positive stories in our episode, we think that things might be about to get a little bumpy because you can't make a drama without drama. And at this point, by 2012, Prince Harry had already served within the British Army in Afghanistan. He was on tour in 2008, uh, and this one had to be kept secret from the British public thanks to a coordinated effort that required the cooperation of the entirety of the British press. And this secret was kept for about 10 weeks, but eventually a foreign news website leaked the story. And this put both Prince Harry and the men around him at an increased risk and so he had to leave and return home. And this is something that Prince Harry was absolutely furious about and he wrote about a lot in his uh, memoir, Spare. But by 2012, Prince Harry had qualified as a helicopter pilot and planned to return to the front lines. But before he packed his bags, there was just time for a wild weekend and it went viral. Have you had a chance to see the big commotion about Prince Harry being naked in one of the suites in Vegas over the weekend. Yeah, it's like blowing up on Twitter. That's everywhere. What do you think about that? Do you understand why it's such a big deal? I mean, what what are your thoughts on the whole situation? I mean, I've been to Vegas. I've had crazy nights and fun times in Vegas. So <laughs> I think what happens there should stay there and, and whatever. In terms of media relations, I think sometimes Prince Harry takes two steps forward and one back. And this is a case like that. As he gets older and has to represent the Queen more and more, then you've got to ask questions about the suitability of the company he's keeping and the wisdom of some of the things he's doing. Harry and a group of chums had decided to grab a quick weekend in Vegas before heading off to Afghanistan. There were one or two pictures, I remember, of them sitting in hot tubs, having a good time generally. Uh, It then appears that they'd met a group of girls that ended up back in someone's hotel suite, whereupon a game of strip billiards seemed to take place. And someone managed to take a photo of a decidedly underdressed, if not stark naked, Prince Harry um, cavorting around a billiard table. Uh, This ended up online and it really did go viral very quickly. 
Yeah, the British press held off publishing these pictures for around 72 hours, but then it was the sun that broke ranks. And one of the headlines was, here's the picture you've already seen, but still printed it, which just shows that really this picture went far and wide. It did. I mean, it was it was an interesting story purely from a sort of media studies point of view, because this was a case where social media was really the intrusive element here. Fleet Street was just catching up, although Prince Harry to this day still blames the newspapers for making this into a huge story. It was a huge story by this point. Clearly, Harry was mortified. I think he felt deeply embarrassed that he'd uh, let the side down. But the fact of the matter was, I think the rest of the world saw the funny side of this. Here's a young man. He's about to go to war. He might not come back. He's single. He's having fun in Vegas. We don't care. Yeah, and Prince Harry got a lot of support within the military community. A former serviceman called Jordan Wiley launched a Facebook group which was called Support Prince Harry with a Naked Salute. Yeah, the entire sort of forces community got behind him. It was enormous sympathy. And uh, you did get these serving personnel, men and women, actually, posting pictures of themselves, not indecent pictures. You know, they might have covered their modesty with a butt of a rifle or a helmet or something. But there were all these pictures of naked members of the armed forces basically saying to Prince Harry, we've got your back. Yeah, but even with all this support that he was getting and sympathy from the public, as he said, you can tell from the quotes he was giving at the time that he really was very hard on himself. He told the Press Association, I let myself down, I let my family down. I was in a private area and, you know, that should have come with a certain amount of privacy. But he said this was a classic example of him being too much army and not enough prince. Clearly the Crown would have gone to town on this particular episode. We can imagine the scenes of anguish on Harry's part. If you remember, Natasha, it was not that long ago in this uh, series six, we saw his absolute despair as he's caught wearing a Nazi uniform at a fancy dress party. I suspect there was a sort of similar level of sort of head in the hands. Oh, my God, I can't believe this has happened. And yet, he doesn't really have time to dwell on it. Because very soon after this whole episode unfolds, there he is, in the thick of it with his comrades. There's no special treatment. There's no hiding place when you're in Afghanistan. He's a serving, fighting member of the armed forces, and he's in action. Prince Harry has always said he wants to go back to Afghanistan, and now it seems his wish may well come true. The 26-year-old spent 10 weeks in Helmand province in 2008 as a forward air controller, calling in airstrikes on insurgents. I thought I could sit through to the end and come back with um, uh, sort of our guys and, and the colonel himself. No, I'd like to still be out there with the guys. Captain Wales, as he's known, was awarded his provisional wings in May last year, receiving them from his father, who's colonel-in-chief of the Army Air Corps. Reports today say defence chiefs and the Queen have given the go-ahead for Harry to return. A spokesman for Clarence House said... Harry is an army pilot and will deploy wherever the army chooses to send him. People often say, you know, when did Harry go from being the kind of happy-go-lucky, happy Harry that we remember as a young boy, as a teenager, to being this much more serious, rather angry Harry? I think this was a sort of turning point. I think this experience with social media and the press and then this uh, very, as they say in the military, kinetic tour of Afghanistan 
led to a sort of change in Harry's demeanour. I think when he came back from Afghanistan, he was much more bitter about the media generally. And that's continued to this day. I don't know whether you feel that this had a sort of uh, long-term effect on him, Natasha. Yeah, I mean, it's an understatement to say it's a lot to go through, a kind of public humiliation and then going to war and all the traumatic things that you see and, and, and that happen there. I think it's really not surprising that that would have seriously changed him. And the crown, I mean, would have really played on all that, don't you think? Yeah, maybe we would have had a new actor when he came back. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, actually. I mean, I, I can certainly see the dramatic tension. You could picture the director having him sort of lying awake in his bivouac out in Afghanistan, the sort of tortured thoughts of, oh, no, what have I done? And then suddenly the call to action stations. We know from his book Spare, where I think rather injudiciously he talked about shooting enemy insurgents, but I think we'd have probably seen quite a bit of that unfolding in this particular episode of The Crown. And I think it would have, certainly there the would have, after all, the sort of upbeat, happy tone of the earlier part of this episode, we'd have seen some pretty dark moments out there on the front line. But then I think they would have probably brought him home. I think The Crown would have wanted to round off this particular episode with a sense of closure. And I think they would have probably then gone from there to focus on what remains to this day one of Harry's really great achievements. Prosthetics, dogs, wheelchairs, high-performance cars, 4x4s, tattoos. We've got everything here. It can only be the Invictus Games. So at the end of a very active tour of duty in Afghanistan. Harry returned home in 2013, I think a different character, a different man. And then something really significant happened. He took a trip to the US, this time not to Las Vegas, but to look at an event called the Warrior Games. This was something that the US Armed Forces had started as a sporting tournament for wounded servicemen and women. It really made an impact on Harry, and it led on to what I think remains one of not just his, but one of the monarchy's really impressive achievements of modern times, and that was the Invictus Games. He saw how a sporting competition could really help rebuild the confidence and self-esteem of incredibly badly wounded servicemen. He thought, right, we're going to do this in Britain, but we're not just going to make it a British event, we're going to make it an international event. And so the Invictus Games were born. And and right from the start, they were a success. I have um, been to an Invictus Games. I went a couple of years ago and it was in the Netherlands. And it really was incredible because obviously by this point, Prince Harry had gone through a lot. And he had left the royal family with Meghan Markle. And it was actually Meghan Markle's first time back in Europe after all of this had gone on. But even with all of that that had happened, you really saw that flicker of him, I think, mm. as he once was. It was that confidence, that positivity, and the way he's received by all of the former servicemen and women there, the sense of community and pride in the whole event and in themselves and in everything that the Games represented. It was really infectious and really powerful. So, yes, absolutely, I think this is one of Prince Harry's greatest achievements. There you were, Natasha. You've been to an Invictus Games. I haven't. So <laughs> Finally! <I'm>, uh, <laughs> but I, I think I could just see the producer's of the crown rounding off this episode 
really showing probably Harry at the heart of the sort of Invictus family. You can just see that this episode that opened with the joy of the Olympics could end with the, the joy of Invictus. That really is all to Harry's credit. They remain a, a huge achievement, as the former Prime Minister David Cameron once put it to me. He said, Harry blew the lights out with Invictus, and he really did. They are a, a sensational achievement of which whatever else has happened since, he can always be proud. That's why I think at the end of this episode, we end with a happy Harry reflecting on a great achievement. Thanks, as always, for listening. Uh, we always love your comments. We've had a few, haven't we, this week, Natasha? Yeah, we've got a great one here from Purple Shazza 1999. They said, really enjoyed watching the latest seasons of The Crown, but to have this informative podcast to listen alongside it and find out what's fact or fiction is brilliant work. Bravo. Well, that's very kind. And if you haven't already, please do leave us a comment and a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. But in the meantime, thanks very much for listening to this episode of The Crown, Fact or Fiction. Goodbye. Goodbye. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Our hit series, Everything I Know About Me, is back for a brand new season. And this time, our guest needs no introduction. I'm coming to find me, Darren! But here's one anyway. Hi, I'm Gemma Collins, and this is everything I know about me. If you think you know all about Gemma Collins, think again, because this is the GC as you've never heard her before. It's been exhausting. Unashamed. And I was really heartbroken because I was pregnant and he was having an affair. Unfiltered. I have had an operation as well years ago. I have a designer vagina. Yeah, baby. I don't have camel toe. Unbelievable. And then they advised me, you need to have a termination. And, uh, yeah, I remember that being really stressful. Everything I Know About Me with Gemma Collins is out this Thursday wherever you get your podcasts.